What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today I'm delighted to talk again to Justin Parrott. You're most welcome, sir. Assalamu alaikum. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Good to have you back. Uh, for those who don't know, uh, Justin is currently research librarian for Middle East Studies at New York University in Abu Dhabi and research fellow for the Akeen Institute for Islamic Research. He embraced Islam in 2004 at the age of 20, so you can work out how old he is. Um, he studied Islam from a traditional perspective with local scholars and imams. Now, he's the author of a fascinating article entitled, Does That Apply to Non-Muslims Too? And I'll link to it in the description below. And in this article at the beginning, he writes the following. A common question Muslims have when reading the Quran and Sunnah is whether or not the lessons found therein apply to non-Muslims. Sometimes the text will refer to Muslims and believers, but does that mean it only applies to Muslims? End quote. So would you like to introduce us to the main themes of your article, Justin? Sure. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Was salatu was salamu ala Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Thank you for inviting me to talk about this article. I'm really excited to talk about it because I think mm. it's, it's a really important theme and point. Um, so just to let you know how the article came to be, um, I, I post a lot of hadith on my social media, and that's pretty much 95% of what I do. And this is a common question that comes up from Muslims all the time, and some non-Muslims. They said, well, does this apply to non-Muslims, right? Does, does this apply to other people? So uh, I 
decided to make a blog post on my own personal blog um, with the same title was do, does that apply to non-Muslims too? And I had some of this material um, and then my colleagues asked me, you know, this would be a great article if you went, if you really made it academic and all the citations and everything and you know, more details. And I was happy to do that. And that's how the article came to be. Um, so it's important for Muslims to know um, when does that apply to non-Muslims? That's one thing because that question comes up. The other thing is that uh, the um, opponents of Islam, the anti-Islam crowd, they will often... They, they will say that any moral rule in Islam only applies to Muslims only. And that and, and then they think you're just allowed to kill non-Muslims. And it's just that's that's just an outrageous absurdity. And and we have to prove it wrong. And so that was part of the reason for the article as well. Um, so to address those concerns um, and I will go through the different types of relationships we have and show you instances in which. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam or the companions may Allah be pleased with them where they were good to non-Muslims and they applied texts that you know were, were general for just human beings in general or people who are at peace with the Muslim community. Um, so let's go through some of those uh, the, these different sections. So the first one obviously is your family ties. This is ar-Rahim. In um, in Arabic, literally means the womb, but it means like uh, your your blood relationships, right? So you're connected to your family through your blood relationships, and we're supposed to be good to our family members and and to um, do wasala with them, which is to connect the family ties and not to cut them, not to cut them off. Um, and, you know, as long as they're not like trying to kill us for being Muslim, right, or trying to um, you know, persecute us in these kinds of things. And, that, and those are extreme cases, right? And alhamdulillah, I think most of us don't encounter that. Um, but there's an interesting um, verse uh, in Surah Al-Luqman where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَإِن جَاهَدَاكَ عَلَىٰ أَن تُشْرِكَ بِمَا لَيْسَ لَكَ بِهِ عِلْمٌ فَلَا تُتِعُمَا وَصَاحِبَهُمَا فِي الدُّنْيَا مَعْرُوفًا That's the key phrase right there. So Allah says, and talking about the parents, because he commanded us to obey the parents and be, to be good to the parents, that if they strive against you, literally if they do jihad against you, in order to make you associate partners with me, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for which they have no knowledge, then do not obey them, but but accompany them in the world ma'rufa. This is this is an interesting word, and it can mean in kindness, good behavior, and what everybody knows is good. Arafa means to know, and ma'ruf is the good things that people know. And people know good things by just by their fitrah, not even by revelation, right? Mm -hmm. So you behave with them in a good way, you accompany them in a good way. And and, and this is a very interesting verse because, um, you know, even if the parents are like striving to get you to follow their religion or to worship some idol or something like that, you don't obey them in that but you still accompany them in the world as uh, uh, in kindness and good behavior and so on. I mean, the, the, um, if I could just pause there very briefly. Uh, when I first came across this verse in your article, I was very struck by uh, by that because it's, it's almost counterintuitive. You'd expect if, if another person is pressuring you to worship associate partners with God, which of course in Islam is, is completely uh, forbidden, 
uh, you'd expect there to be uh, hostilities and so on. But here, with a parent, with a mother and so on, you're expected to show them kindness or associated uh, terms connected with the word kindness, which is extraordinary. Um, how familial ties uh, uh, overall uh, th this issue. But of course, you're not supposed to obey them in those specific areas where they enjoin sin. But nevertheless, kindness is still commanded by God towards the unbeliever, even when they pressure you to follow uh, false gods or associate partners with God. So it's a very interesting verse uh, right at the beginning of your article. Uh, I was very, very impressed with that. Yeah, alhamdulillah, I, I have read that verse many times, but the implications didn't really uh, sink into me until I heard my mentor, Dr. Shawat, uh, read it in the masjid in one of his khatirah and how he explained it. So uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating verse. And um, when you really think about it, it's it's amazing, alhamdulillah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Uh, very instructive. Yeah. Um, so again, the, so a rahim is the, the womb, the family ties. We have to maintain them. We can't cut off the family members. And, um, and that applies to all your kind of blood relatives. And um, a rahim comes from rahma, mercy, which is also the name of Allah, a rahman, the most merciful. Mm. So in this regard, the messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And فَقَالَ اللَّهُ مَنْ وَصَلَكِ وَصَلْتُهُ وَمَنْ قَطَعَكِ قَطَعْتُهُ So the Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings be upon him, said, Verily, the womb, meaning the family ties, is derived from the name of the most merciful, Ar-Rahman. And Allah says that whoever maintains you, the womb, the family ties, I will maintain relations with him. And whoever cuts you off, I will cut him off, right? So this is a this is a you know a, 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 a strong encouragement for us to maintain the the family ties and to uh, not cut people off and even the messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam many of his family members did not um, accept Islam obviously and uh, he still didn't cut them off right and he was still he still had an obligation to them as family members mm. and even. Uh, this type of affection between family members is permissible. 
And what is the proof for that? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قُلْ لَا أَسْأَلُكُمْ عَلَيْهِ أَجَرًا إِلَّا الْمَوَدَّةَ فِي الْقُرْبَةِ Allah says, say, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, I do not ask you anything for it, any wage for it, meaning this da'wah to Islam, except for affection in the family relatives, al-qurba, with relatives, right? So even with your family members, you still want to give them that affection that is due to family members. That's a good way to call them to Islam, to be a good example of Islam. And he didn't ask them for any wage or any money, you know, for to share Islam with them, right? He was doing it uh, out of obedience to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, but he did expect that affection from them, right? Because that's something that's just normal between family members. And we know the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, his uncle Abu Talib, you know, he died as a non-Muslim and um, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam tried to make him become a Muslim even on his deathbed, but he wouldn't do it. And he still had that natural love that we have for family members. And that kind of love is natural and there's nothing wrong with that as long as it doesn't cause you to disobey Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala or you're not encouraging them in some kind of wrongdoing that, they're, that they are doing. Yeah. Um, and uh, another proof that I cite is um, is also in uh, the, the hadith before it was in Al-Bukhari, uh, also in Al-Bukhari, uh, there was a companion, uh, Asma bint Abi Bakr, radiallahu uh, anha, is a female companion, the son, uh, I'm sorry, the daughter of Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, the great companion. She, uh, in the Medinan period, you know, there's this conflict between Medina and Mecca, and Mecca is sending troops to, to wipe out the Muslim community that was just established in Medina. And the, uh, her mother came to, the, um, to Medina, came to Asma, radiallahu anha, and she was expecting good treatment. And so Asma went to the Prophet sallallahu and said, my mother's coming to me, she wants good treatment, what should I do? And the Prophet ﷺ told her, yes, maintain relations with your mother. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the verse in Surah Al-Mumtahana, لَا يَنْهَاكُمُ اللَّهُ عَنِ الَّذِينَ لَمْ يُقَاتِلُوكُمْ فِي الدِّينَ Allah said, Allah does not prohibit you from being fair and, and just um, and good to those who never fought you in the religion, right? Who never fought you for the sake of religion. And this verse is also very important, and I didn't actually quote it in the article, but it, it makes this distinction between there are non-Muslims who want to persecute you, want to deny your religious freedom, want to might want to even kill you, and are, are, are doing these ex extreme acts of injustice towards you, and then there are Muslim, non-Muslims who don't do that, right? Mm -hmm. And so you can't treat those two groups of people the same, right? right. And so, you know, scholars would make this distinction between there's a non-Muslim who's actively trying to hurt you, and then there's a non-Muslim who's just kind of like living their life, right? They're not, they're not trying to hurt you. They're not supportive of Islam, but they're also not against Islam. So, um, you know, you want to, th th those are two different groups of people, and, and you, know, you would behave differently with, with, uh, with either of them. So this is with respect to the family relationship, and um, it's clear proof here that uh, you treat your non-Muslim relatives well. Um, okay. okay, so that, that's the family relationship. Now let's talk about the neighbor relationship. So mm -hmm. uh, there are a lot of hadith that talk about goodness to the neighbors, 
And it is understood that, that your neighbors can be a Muslim or a non-Muslim, right? There were some companions who had non-Muslim neighbors and Jewish neighbors, and um, they weren't evil to their neighbors, right? And, and uh, you know, um, there are a lot of warnings about uh, from the Prophet Wasallam about mistreating neighbors, and there's a lot of encouragement to do good to neighbors. Um, and so this is another example where, you know, your neighbors are non-Muslim, but you still treat them well, right? You know, for the companions of the Prophet himself, and obviously that's normative in many ways for Muslims, uh, even today, uh, that, that their practice, uh, uh, they were inclusive in the way they, rather than exclusive, they included their non-Muslim neighbors, whether they're Jews or Christians or whoever, uh, as long as their, their, their neighbors weren't at war with them, I suppose, and that they were enjoined to be neighborly and practice charity and kindness and consideration and so on. Um, and this goes right back to the beginning of Islam itself. Absolutely. Um, so one of the main proofs for that uh, is in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, These are the key phrase here at the end. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to worship him alone and to not associate anything with him and to be good to your parents and to your relatives and to the orphans and to the poor and the needy and to the near neighbor and to the far neighbor right so there's two kinds of neighbors there's your near neighbor and in your far neighbor and if you look at the at the tafsir uh literature uh, how, how scholars have explained this uh verse one of the explanations is that the near neighbor are the muslims and the far neighbor are the non-muslims right and jews and christians and um the distance here being distance in religion, not distance like physical distance, although that is one understanding of the verse. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, Allah is commanding Ihsan towards the non-Muslim neighbor, right? And Ihsan is, in other words, like ma'roof, but it means like good behavior, excellent behavior, it could mean kindness, you know, you're treating them in the best way, right? And so uh, there's one of the companions, his name is Abdullah ibn Amr, radiallahu anhu, may Allah be pleased with him. Um, and this is recorded in Al-Adab al-Mufrad uh, by Al-Bukhari, not the Sahih, but the, the Adab book, and it is an authentic hadith. So he he had a, a servant of his, right, a young boy, and he was preparing a roasted sheep. And uh, Abdullah, he, uh, Abdullah uh, said to him, uh, you know, when you finish with this sheep, go ahead and bring it to our Jewish neighbor, right? And there was a man there who took offense to that, and he was like, a Yehudi, uh, a Yehudi, uh, he said, Allah correct you, as if he had done something sinful, right? How could you give, go give this charity to non-Muslim, right, Jewish person? And we know the history of that, the, you know, the, the, the relationships between the Muslims and the Jews are not always good, right? So he probably had that in mind. Uh, but Abdullah said to him, Inni sami'atu an Nabiya sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yusi bil jari hatta khashina annahu sayuwarithu. He said, I have heard the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, enjoining good treatment for the neighbor and to the point that we feared that he would make us uh, inherit to them, right? Or bequeath to them, right? That he, he, uh, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he encouraged good treatment to the neighbors so often that the companions were afraid that he would uh, make them inheritors, right, of their estate. 
So um, this is another clear application um, of the, the neighbor here it can mean your uh, non-Muslim neighbor or Muslim neighbor. And the hadith actually that he's citing is in uh, Sahih al-Bukhari. Uh, it's, it's well-known hadith. And when, you're, when you look at the treatises on being good to your neighbor, this is one of the first ones they cite. Um, but a, again, the companion is applying it to his non-Muslim neighbor, to his Jewish neighbor, right? So again, there's a, there's a uh, clear proof. And then um, in, in relation to the verse that we said about giving, uh, uh, showing ihsan towards the non-Muslim neighbors, uh, Al-Qurtubi, who is a very well-known tafsir scholar, he's in his commentaries, um, he puts all the opinions there, and then he says, He says, I say, he's talking about it, so he says, I say, and upon that, uh, the instruction regarding the neighbor is commanded, and it is recommended for them, whether they are Muslim or an unbeliever, and this is the correct opinion. So, what, so what, what, what was the date of the uh, the uh, the scholar there that uh, made that? Uh, he was El Portobi, so he was in uh, Muslim Spain. Um, I, I think I want to say like twelfth, thirteenth century. Right. So it's definitely not the modern period. I just want to, you know, this, yeah. this, this, it's not a kind of a liberal influence here. This is a classical Muslim scholar from the time yeah. of Andalusia, Islamic Spain, which was at least 700 years ago. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And they, they had a lot of non-Muslim neighbors when they were in, when there was Muslim Spain. Um, I, I think his date of death is uh, 600 Hijri. So it would be like 12, 1200s, Cream and Era. So yeah, this is definitely a classical opinion. Um, and then uh, he says this, and then he also lists a bunch of hadith to support his opinion, and one of which was the one about Abdullah ibn Amr that we just mentioned earlier. So this is the neighbor relationship. It could be Muslim, it could be non-Muslim, and you just, whoever you're living around, like whoever you meet within your day, like you should be treating them well as the default position. You know, you, you don't ask people, what is your creed, what is your religion, what everything, and then, and then based on that, you treat them goodly or badly, you should just be, in general, be good to everyone, because that's the default position. Now, um, so the, uh, okay. So this is the family relationship, and this is the neighbor relationship, and these precede the law as applied by a centralized modern nation state, right? So if there was no state and there was no government, you would still have a family, you would still have neighbors, right? So this precedes the, the centralization of law that happened during the modern nation state period. And, and it even precedes uh, the age of empires and, and uh, the caliphate and, and all those things, right? So the, these are the relationships that are most immediate to us, right? But then uh, when the government is established, then you have to deal with the non-Muslims within your territory and the non-Muslims outside of your territory. And uh, the scholars, the legal scholars, the fuqaha, they classified non-Muslims into three legal categories. So the first one is there's a dhimmi, and this is a not, and dhimma is like a, a covenant, you know, a, a, a guarantee of protection. Uh, a dhimmi is a non-Muslim who lives in a Muslim land and pays the taxes to a Muslim authority. So they pay jizya. And in, 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 uh, 
in response to that, the Muslim community is uh, obligated to defend them from outside forces, right? So they're they're not just like it, it's a contractual relationship. It's not um, you know we're just we're just taking money out of them like that. It's you know they they have to pay they have to support the Muslim state, and I'm using state in the sense of government. And then the Muslims have an obligation to protect these people if they are paying their taxes, right? And so it's like, really is a is by definition of a protected individual or protected community living yeah. in an Islamic society under Islamic uh, rulership, and uh, they have a contractual relationship. So they pay taxes, and in response, the government, the Islamic government, uh, has certain duties of protection uh, from the enemies and attackers and so on towards the enemies who are non-Muslims by definition. Correct. And uh, they also are autonomous in their religious dealings, so they get to apply their own religious laws to themselves. They get their own funerals. They get their places of worship, all of their own laws of inheritance and all of these kinds of laws. You know, we have laws that are specific to Muslims, the way we do funerals, the way we do inheritance, the way we do um, uh, other types of things in, in, that, in, in that kind of sphere. And then they, the Muslim, non-Muslims, if they're paying taxes to the Muslim state, they get to keep their religion and they can imply the religion sort of autonomously. So the law wasn't quite centralized in the way that it is now, where everybody follows the one law of the state. You know, really, it was more like there was this like sub community in the broader like Muslim community that, you know, they paid taxes. And as long as they were doing that, they were defended and then they could keep their own religions and do and do. You know, uh what, what strikes, yeah, what strikes me here is how much more pluralist this understanding was than a modern nation state. I mean, I'm sitting here in France at the moment, and there is, strictly speaking, one rule for everyone, regardless of the community, uh, if you're Muslim or Christian or secular or Jew or whatever. But it, mm -hmm. under Islam, it was much more pluralistic, and more, to use an anachronistic term, liberal. I don't mean that, of course, accurately. But what, I, what I'm trying to say is that there was a respect given to difference and allowing people to have different rules, uh, and ways of living without insisting on one size fits all template that is enforced on everyone uniformly by the one state, which is very much the case here in France. So right. um, it, it's a much more one could, I'm sure many people would think this is a much more civilized uh, and, and more kind of tolerant system than the one prevailing in some places in the world anyway. Yeah, I, I would say that um, definitely. And um, I also don't, you know, it, it kind of depends on what was going on in the in the society at that time, because you know, when when Muslims are being attacked by like uh, the, the Romans and stuff, obviously there's going to be more tensions within the communities that are existing within the Muslim sphere of influence, and you know, and some of the uh, jurists had harsh rules, you know, I don't want, I'm not going to sugarcoat that, but at the same time, you know, there there was a lot of uh, good. Uh, I don't want to say progressive, but uh, enlightened views towards non-Muslims that was more so than it was in the West and maybe even some parts in the West today. Um, so there's, there's that category, the Dhimmi. Then there is a Mu'ahid, which is a non-Muslim who lives in a country that is upholding a peace treaty with Muslims. Okay, so you have, they're not living in the Muslim territory, you know, they're living in the Roman Empire or uh, wherever. And uh, the Muslims have a peace treaty with this country, and so they're protected by law for that reason. And then you have a Mustatmin, which is somebody who is given a guarantee of protection to enter the Muslim country, the state, and do business or whatever. It's like somebody getting a visa. So the Muslim country can allow people to give people visas to come in 
and then they're granted an order of protection and then you're not allowed to transgress against them. Right. So these are the, yeah, so these are the three uh, legal categories that the jurists came up with. And um, all of them are, are under protection in, in a way that's similar to the legal protections that are supposed to be given to Muslims. And the, so one of the, some of the basis of these uh, legal categories, uh, you know, the Prophet Sallallahu encouraged us to honor our agreements in that, you know, the, the person who is treacherous will be, you know, a banner will be raised on the day of judgment and this person will be humiliated in front of all creation that this person is, is, a, tre is a treacherous person, is, wow. is a, uh, like that. So, you know, there's a, there's a high emphasis on keeping your agreements and promises and not breaking, you know, not breaking your word when you give it. Um, one of those hadith, there's a couple of them here I'll mention, uh, and this is in uh, Sahih al-Bukhari, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, من قتل نفسا معاهدا لم يرح رائحة الجنة وإن وإن ريحها يوجد من مسيرة أربعين عاما. The Messenger of Allah said, peace and blessings be upon him, whoever kills a soul معاهد that is protected by a covenant or a promise, then whoever killed them will not smell the fragrance of paradise even though its fragrance can be detected a distance of 40 years of travel. Wow. So this, this is a, you know, a strong warning that, you know, you have to uphold your agreements. And if you, you kill this person wrongly and they were given an agreement by the Muslim government that this person will not even smell the fragrance of paradise, even though, you know, it can be, it's so vast and, you know, they won't even get be getting near it. So, Extraordinary. Uh, so, so the prophet here is, is saying that you know if a Muslim treats a, a non-Muslim badly, that this non-Muslim who has a contractual relationship, they're supposed to be looked after and protected and given their rights, they, they will be denied paradise, which is a, a huge um, threat in a way, to uh, an encouragement obviously to treat people well. So, and this comes from the prophet himself. Absolutely. Yes. Um, and also, it's it's just about wronging non-Muslims in general, right? So. Um, uh, there's another narration. This is in the Sunan Abi Dawood. Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam said, "Man zalama mu'ahidan aw in in taqasahu aw kallafahu fawqa taqatihi aw akhda minhu shay'an bi ghayri tibi nafsin fa ana hajijuhu yom al-qiyama." This is another, another in the same vein. It's a very strong warning. The Messenger of Allah peace and blessings be upon him said, "Whoever wrongs a mu'ahid." And mu'ahid here doesn't necessarily mean the technical definition I gave you ever, but whoever's been given a promise of security, right? So Zimmi or anybody else, right? Mustatman and so on. So whoever... When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Wrongs them and... Uh, uh, violates their rights, decreases their rights, uh, burdens them with with what is above their ability to do, or mm -hmm. takes something from them without their consent, without plebe nefs, which is like they're happy to have given it to you, right? Uh, the Messenger of Allah said, I am his prosecutor on the day of judgment, right? Mm -hmm. He will be giving the hujjah against this Muslim who wronged a non-Muslim on the day of judgment. Right. 
So, you know, imagine that, you know, if you have wronged a non-Muslim and, and, and there's no just cause for doing that, you know, there's a peace between you, a relationship uh, that the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, when you are being asked by Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala, why did you wrong this person? The messenger of Allah will be testifying against you, right? So that, that's another big scary thing that, you know, we, sh we can't be violating these, these agreements, right? Um, and, 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 and also, it's not just the, the, the legal uh, system, I mean, it is that, but it's also just like if you give somebody a promise, right, just as an individual, because ahad um, means you give somebody a promise, right? So if two nations make an agreement, I promise not to do this, they promise not to do that, that's a covenant, right? But you can give a promise to, as a person to an individual. So if you promise a non-Muslim something, and then you you violate that promise or you're treacherous against them or whatever that's a huge serious sin and uh you know the 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 threat of what will happen in the hereafter is enormous for that um so we ask allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to protect us from falling into that sin um i quoted the maliki jurist uh, muhammad ibn yusuf al-mawaq uh, and he said that the all of the narrations like the two i just mentioned but all of the narrations that prohibit harming these protected categories are mutawatir. They're mutawatir. What does that mean? They're, they're unanimously reported such that it's it, it's the knowledge of it is undeniable. So there's no right. doubt these are authentic because they're so massively transmitted through multiple yes. different transmissions that there's no doubt that they're real, they're authentic. Uh, yes. There's also so, mean, I mean, perhaps more controversially that those um, you know, if Muslims like ourselves live in the West, if we're living in America or France or Britain or Germany, whatever, that, then we, we are meant to uphold the law and respect our neighbors and we, we shouldn't be violent or let alone commit acts of terrorism or anything like that. Uh, because we, there's, there's a contract between, you know, we're agreeing to live there, the government agreed to protect us. Um, so we should be good citizens, uh, I guess, unless the government asks us or commands us to do something that is patently sinful. Uh, you know, tell us, or Muslims, you must drink alcohol or something. I can't imagine that mm -hmm. happening. But, um, then we're supposed to uphold the law and be good neighbors and not, and not uh, obviously behave badly in any possible way. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, so when we're a citizen of a non-Muslim country, this, this works the other way. If we're a citizen of a non-Muslim country or we have a visa to enter a non-Muslim country, that's, that's a contractual agreement that we have to uphold. Yeah. And there are, there are Muslims who, use you know they use this excuse oh these are kufar you know i don't have any obligations to them mm -hmm. and there are muslims who have been caught defrauding you know mm -hmm. and these were uh, defrauding muslims or non-muslims uh they were uh taken to court and prosecuted and convicted for that um and you know their excuse was this uh you know they had sympathies with like the al-qaeda ideology and that their excuse was these are non-muslims i don't have any obligation to them and, and that's just a pure ignorance of the law, right, of, of the Islamic law, right? So, uh, so these are the, um, the issue of the covenants, right? So you're not allowed to harm a, a non-Muslim when there's uh, a peace between your two countries or they're, they've been given a, a visa to enter your country or they're living peacefully inside a Muslim country. You know, and, and most of the areas of the world have this kind of jurisdiction, right? Um, the, the, as a side point, the, the way that Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, or uh, Daesh, I, ISIS, 
they, they try to come up with a, a, a legal an Islamic legal theory that allows suicide bombing and uh, you know, killing women and children and things like that. And one of the ways they do that is they said, well, you know, all these Muslim countries are kuffar, you know, the, the ruler of Saudi Arabia is a kafir, the ruler of UAE is a kafir, the ruler of Egypt is a kafir, everybody's a kafir except them. And therefore, they don't have to honor any international agreements and laws and, and, and covenants or anything like that. Everybody's stateless to them. And nobody, nobody no non-Muslim is a mustatman or a mu'ahid or dhimmi. And therefore, we can just kill them without, uh, you know, we can just legally kill them. You know, and then, you know I, I did read some of these uh, treatises in Arabic and they're just, they're psychotic, right? And, and they're ignorant. And everything, but I mean, there are specific injunctions to the Prophet: you're not to kill uh, non-combatants, innocent women, children. I mean, unless a woman was to take up arms against the Muslims, you know. But that, that's different. But even an innocent woman, uh, innocent uh, anyone, monks, you name it, the explicit prohibitions in the Prophet's teaching not to harm these people. Uh, so you're basically, uh, in a kind of ironically, people like Bin Laden and so on have been quite liberal, if I can use that term, in, in actually saying, oh, well, this is out of date now. We're, we're, we're going to invent our new, we're going to do new Ishtahad, and we're going to you know, even be like Bin Laden, they're not actually scholars. They're not actually religiously trained scholars. Uh, they're not authorized to do Ishtahad and issue fatwas, but that's exactly what he did, uh, his famous fatwas, calling on Muslims to kill innocent people. I mean, explicitly, this is not propaganda. This is what he said, and you can read them. For yourself so this is completely against the basic teachings of islam i mean it's it can't be more basic yeah absolutely and um they will also say that well the west is terrorizing us bombing us killing our women and children therefore we're going to kill yes. their women and children yes. but killing women and children and unarmed people and people who are not fighting is haram in itself right it's not haram attached to a condition it's haram in itself and uh, think of this analogy. So if people came into our country and were raping our women, does that mean we can go into their country and rape their women? Mm -hmm. I mean, you could, you, that, that's, uh, that's outrageous to make that kind of analogy, right? And killing is worse than rape. So that now analogy just doesn't hold. Their whole legal theory is built off of ignoring huge parts of the law and taking a few things and building up something that is really a paper tiger just collapses if you actually... Yeah, there needs to be a holistic understanding of the Qur'an's teaching, holistic understanding that rather than taking isolated verses and then mm -hmm. you know, building your entire edifice on that. And I come back to the point that Bin Laden and others like him were not actually qualified to issue fatwas and religious rulings in the first place. So uh, this is, uh, they are laymen. Um, so they're not, Islamically speaking, they don't have the right to uh, make these statements anyway, despite the criminality of what they say. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we had these three uh, types of relationships, the family, the neighbor, and then the covenants with the non-Muslims, uh, or whatever their relationship to the Muslim government is. Uh, but we also have this uh, general um, this general understanding with humanity, humanity, Banu Adam, the children of Adam, we're all the children of Adam, and the children of Adam have rights in themselves Right. whether or not they are, are, are in a contractual relationship with the state or whatever. So in this regard, Shaykh uh, al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah, I rely a lot upon him. He says, uh, He says the asl, the default rule, right? The basic 
rule that you start with is that the blood of an atomy, right, which is a word for human being, right, a, 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 ch a child of Adam, is masum. It's inviolable. He is not killed except bilhak, and haq here means like with a just cause, right? That in truth and justice, right? Yeah, so it becomes, the, it becomes an enemy combat combatant, for example. So is it someone who's a soldier who's who's uh, at war with you? Obviously, that's different. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, so on this grounds, Al Qaeda, is, Al Qaeda, is again way off the mark, right? Because they don't have any, they don't entertain any, I, uh, any thought that human beings could have natural rights in themselves. Um, but uh, our scholars had that. Um, and as a side point, um, I want to explain how like things like human rights and stuff develop because people ask, well, why aren't there human rights treatises that the classical scholars wrote about? And the reason for that is because the theory of human rights, you know, had to develop, right? And um, uh, what usually the, the way Islamic law developed is that first you had the rules, then you had the theory, and then from the theory you develop, you take your fatawa and your, and your new practices and everything like that. So, uh, so fiqh came first, then usul al-fiqh, right? And then the fatawa, right? That's the, the, the chain of how things develop. So you have a set of facts, you develop a theory to explain all the facts, and then you apply your theory to new situations. And so other, other types of knowledge uh, follow the same traje trajectory. So you won't find like a treatise on human rights in classical Islamic literature, at least I'm not aware of, but they will mention the usul, right, as like Ibn Taymiyyah did here, which is a principle when they're discussing specific cases, right? So they have, you know, they're talking about specific cases. These are all the different rules. And then they'll mention the rule underlying or the principle underlying all of the rules. So if you can, if you can pick them from here and there and everything like that, and you can kind of um, come up with a picture of how they did have a, a, a concept of human rights not as developed as it is now with all the treaties and everything and Western understandings, Eastern understandings, the Islamic uh, Declaration of Cairo, Declaration of Human Rights in Islam, things like that. Uh, but th those ideas were definitely there. They were not alien. They, they just, uh, they were concerned with practical matters. And as they're discussing practical matters, they will come back to theoretical principles that uh, ju justify and explain the practical rules that they're talking about and just collecting all of those in one treatise where just didn't happen in the classical period as far as I am aware. Uh, but it was there. And then uh, in this passion, Ibn Taymiyyah gives an example from the Quran where, of Musa السلام, the prophet Moses, when he was in Egypt before he left, right? He was a young man and he came across a group of two factions that were fighting. One was the Egyptians and one was the Israelites. And Musa went to intervene and he hit the man uh, the Egyptian man and he killed him, right? Mm -hmm. And it was an accident. He didn't intend to kill him. He was breaking up the fight. Uh, but what did he, and, and think about this, you know, the Egyptians, they're our enemy. They're enslaving the Israelites. Yeah, I have every reason to hate them and want to harm them. But, and Musa Islam killed this man. And what did he say? He said, this act, what he had just done is the act of shaitan, the act of Satan, and, and verily, he is a he is a misguided, clearly misguided enemy, misguiding people, right? So 
this again shows that uh, you know th th this was an Egyptian. He had a, he he had uh, the right not to be killed, right? And in that situation, even though he was fighting with a group of Israelites and the Egyptians are doing all of these evil things to the Israelites and enslaving them and everything. Um, <clears throat> so uh, Ibn Taymiyyah excites that as one of the examples of this, of this basic principle that human beings are not to be killed unless there's a just cause to do that, you know, whether just by virtue of being human beings and not in relation to any government, right? Just a natural right of the human being. So, that's at the level of humanity. So we do, it is important to know that we do have this wider relationship to humanity. And um, I don't want to push that too far, like the French idea where, where they're, they're trying to put all humanity under this liberal brotherhood and, and that just does not quite working in many ways, right? Um, but, you know, we, we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Our concern is worshiping Allah and sharing Islam with people so that they worship Allah and benefit from Islam. And we unite with people on the basis of that. We relate to people on the basis of that. So, I mean, it sounds really good to bring all human beings together. And, you know, we can cooperate on things that are, are of benefit to all humanity and everything like that. But um, that, that slogan can be deceptive, right? Mm -hmm. And I think French context is an example of that. You know, they want to make a brotherhood of humanity but they want to do it under the basis of liberalism. And then, you know, anybody who doesn't accept that is going to be thrown out. So, you know, there, there can never really be. Quite literally, yeah. It's not a metaphor. There have been imams in this country who have been literally kicked out of the country, even though they've lived here forever, um, for uh, having views directly from the Quran. Um, so, yeah, you're right. It, it's equality, fraternity, uh, based on, only based on a very secular, liberal, uh, presupposition. It's not neutral, objective, or kind of portable. You can take it from place to place. It's rooted in a particular historical, cultural, political context, and it's quite intolerant. Um, I'm not saying other countries aren't also intolerant. Of course they are, but uh, but it's just the, uh, the the presentation of inclusivity and equality and fraternity, but the reality is often quite different. Is that is that difference? Uh, mm -hmm. Some would call it hypocrisy. Uh, that is quite remarkable. I think rather than oh, here's another society that's intolerant. Of course, many societies, maybe even most are in the world today. Yeah. I mean. And I, I saw the uh, the uh, Italian prime minister, The um, I forget her name. She I saw a clip of her. Yes, uh, that, you know, she didn't, she was protesting the construction of a new mosque, a new masjid. And then she wanted us to say the prayers and to do the, the sermons in Italian, right? And we can't, we're not allowed to pray in Italian uh, in, in, uh, the formal prayer, right? We have to say it in Arabic because that's the language of the Quran. Yeah. Um, but anyway, th this uh, this idea that we're all going to have one brotherhood of humanity under one ideology—it's a false idea because humanity can never be uh, combined under one ideology. There's always going to be people who are not within that. You know, we we are united as Muslims, and there are going to be people that are outside that. And the you know they want to unite people under liberalism. And there's going to be people who dissent from that, and they will have varying degrees of intolerance for that. So well, that sounds good, one brotherhood of humanity. That sounds good as a political slogan, but in practice, it can't really happen. Um, but nevertheless, like we we still have this connection to every human being because we all go back to Adam and Eve, alayhim um, salam, alayhim salam, peace be upon them both. So we have that human connection and you should just be good to in human beings to general and just uh, not um, 
make a distinction until they uh, cause a distinction to be made. What I, what I mean is that you assume they're innocent, and then you know once they start doing acts of transgression and aggression and wrongdoing and everything like that, then you can deal with that accordingly. But as a basic rule, the human beings like have natural rights, and you should be treating them well, being a good example of, of Islam to them, um, and so on. Um, so also, it just uh, your quote, you quoted Ibn Taymiyyah there, uh, doing his tafsir on that uh, verse in the Quran, where, where Moses uh, committed an act of manslaughter and so on, of an Egyptian. Um, it's interesting because uh, often in the West, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is associated precisely with these kind of Al-Qaeda type ideologies. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think it, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah is completely misunderstood and abused in, in that uh, alleged connection. Uh, so it's, it's good to hear Ibn Taymiyyah being cited uh, for what he, you know, from what he really actually said, and that count goes against the idea of this kind of civilizational war that those in the West are all to be killed, where women and the children, as Al Qaeda have explicitly said, in fact, no, they they have they have human they have a humanity, human rights, I suppose you could say, by virtue of their Adamic uh, solidarity with the whole human race, and uh, and it's good to hear Ibn Taymiyyah being cited in that regard. I think. Yeah, um, uh, so Al-Qaeda and Daesh, ISIS, they um, they cited Ibn Taymiyyah in some points. And keep in mind that the compilation of his fatawa and his legal opinions is is 30 volumes long or more. It's yeah. just an enormous work. He's written so much. And, you know, so it's easy to pick things out. And then, you know, they pick here, they pick there. And then, oh, they cited Ibn Taymiyyah. This must be the truth, you know, because Ibn Taymiyyah is Sheikh al-Islam. Right. And, you know, they just ignore other things. Right. So, um, you know, and I, I brought a lot of those things. So uh, he is uh, misunderstood. And that's because these terrorist groups have cited him um, wrongly and they are only citing him as a propaganda measure. They don't actually subscribe to his legal theories, because mm -hmm. as I showed you, they they uh, Ibn Taymiyyah said that the, the base, the legal basis of a human being is that they're they're inviolable. They're not allowed to be killed. Right. And they have discarded that principle completely, right? And they're killing women and children, right? So it, it, it's part of the propaganda. And it's unfortunate that he was introduced to a lot of Western people this way, but a lot of what he said contradicts those terrorists. And a yes. lot of his opinions are still very, uh, very valuable. And I, and I, I rely upon a lot of what, of what he has yeah. said. Uh, and there are Western scholars now, very eminent ones, who are, uh, uncovering the real Ibn Taymiyyah, going back to the sources. Uh, John Hoover uh, in England uh, is one famous one. He's not a Muslim. But there's another one whose name I forget. I think he's Belgian. Uh, he writes in French. He's a, a esteemed uh, Ibn Taymiyyah scholar. Do you remember his name? Top, top of your head, is it Michaud? Um, anyway, I'm uh, uh, Hammer? No, I, I, I can't, I, I'm very naughty. I should have checked this before I mentioned his name. But there, there are um, serious scholars in the West who are very respected and mainstream, published by Oxford University Press and so on, uh, who, who discuss the real Ibn Taymiyyah. Um, mm. And it's quite different from uh, e either the kind of the Western caricature or the Al-Qaeda distortion. Um, and that, that's, that can only be a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think there's a book called Ibn Taymiyyah Against Extremism or something. Yes. That's the one they buy here. That is, um, yeah, yeah, that, that's uh, that's a good one. Put in the states, he's, he's, I think he's originally French Belgium or something, and uh, mm -hmm. I think yes, he's a Muslim, but he's uh, indigenous to Belgium and uh, but a very eminent professor and expert on Ibn Taymiyyah, who's been published by Oxford University Press and others. So, yeah, giving giving us the real Ibn Taymiyyah uh, rather than this distortion. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Um, so we went through all of these levels of relationship and showing that there's there's a degree of you being good to non-Muslims in all of those perspectives. Mm. Um, and then I want to talk about well, one of the principles of interpreting the Quran and Sunnah, uh, the Ahadith or the Hadith, um, is that uh, the the context uh, of when a statement is made in the Quran or in the Sunnah, um, the language could be exclusive, like it's, it sounds like it's only applying to Muslims, but it actually applies to non-Muslims too. And I brought several examples of that, and I'll give one good one here. There's a hadith in uh, Sahih al-Bukhari that the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Al-Muslimu man salima al-Muslimuna min lisanihi wa yadi. He said, the Muslim is one from whose tongue and hand the Muslims are safe. Okay, mm -hmm. so he's, he's telling you not to harm other Muslims. And that's that. this is a hadith on the authority of Abdullahi ibn Amr. May Allah be pleased with him. Uh, but there's a, another narration on the authority of Abu Huraira. May Allah be pleased with him. And Sunan al-Nasa'i, it's, Nasa'i, it's also authentic. And in this one, the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, Al-Muslimu man saliman nasu min lisanihi wa yadi. So again, the same statement, but instead of the Muslims, it's the people. The Muslim is one is the one from whose uh, from whose tongue and hand people are safe, right? Mm -hmm. So, and nas can be uh, you know it, it implies more broader, right? Nas yeah, means people, doesn't it? Arabic. Yeah. yeah, and it doesn't always necessarily mean all humankind. It's it's translated like that, but it just means the people, right? So, mm -hmm. and that could be Muslims or non-Muslims. It could be your neighbors, whatever. Um, so you'll see, and and the and uh, the, the messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam, you know, he may be talking to a group of Muslims, right? And he's he's telling, he's trying to build solidarity within the group of Muslims and telling them not to harm each other. So that he's speaking that in one way, uh, but then he says the same thing and uses the word people in another context, no. um, you know, and different companions narrated it differently because they heard it differently. Um, but you, you can see that. Um, and there are other examples of this as well. It says Muslims in one hadith, and in another narration it says the people or the neighbors. Um, but in any case, um, the, uh, uh, the fuqaha, the scholars, they uh, extended a lot of these hadith to mean non-Muslims, even if it said Muslim or brother in the hadith. Like there's a there's a there's a, a discussion among scholars that when the Prophet says his brother, does he mean your Muslim brother or your relative brother or like your brother in humanity, right? Mm -hmm. So those are three different kinds of brotherhood. So which, which one is he talking about? Um, and so we have a lot of uh, uh, a hadith from the Messenger of Allah he says, don't, and telling us not to backbite against our brothers. Backbiting is when you say something about another person in their absence that they would not approve of if you said it to their face and then you have no excuse for saying that you know like telling you somebody oh somebody's going to hurt you you know that's not backbiting but saying i hate this person i think he's like that you know he's so you know he does this 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 you know talking badly about somebody like that's actually a major sin and um the uh, scholars said you're not allowed to backbite a non-muslim who's in one of these protected categories for example even Hajar al-Haytami, right? He said that there's a legal punishment for backbiting a non-Muslim, right? Really? Yeah. So that the, the, what just disapproved of is actually a crime. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, it, there's a, a ta'zir, there's a discretionary punishment. 
against the non uh, against the Muslim if he's backbiting the non-Muslim, right? And, and in addition to what comes in the hereafter, um, and then also other scholars like Al Buhuti and Al Has Al Haskafi Al Haskafi, excuse me, uh, they said that cursing a non-Muslim or insulting a non-Muslim uh, in one of these protected categories is prohibited and is also legally punished, right? There's a tazir punishment for them, right? The ruler has to step in and stop Muslims from insulting dignitaries who visited the Muslim country, uh, insulting non-Muslim citizens of the Muslim country, insulting non-Muslims who are at peace with the Muslim country. You know, the ruler has to, the Muslim ruler has to step in and stop them from insulting these people because that act of transgression, you're actually transgressing against the peace of the Muslim state and the Muslim country. So if you're agitating against these non-Muslims, you're also agitating against Muslims who are at peace with them because if the relationships break down and the peace treaties are, are gone and that that harms the Muslims, that, that was a transgression against not just that non-Muslim community that you harmed, but against the Muslim community because then you damage relationships in a way that has harmed the Muslim community. So, so compared compared to that, the, the the way that the the Islamic rulership is solicitous for the the, the rights of uh, these non-Muslims, compare that to many places, perhaps in the West, where uh, there there is great uh, concern to protect those who insult the Prophet. I'm thinking of a notorious novelist who was uh, recently mm -hmm. attacked. Um, the government here in, in France was very uh, open. In fact. Uh, uh, praised this individual and promoted him and said how wonderful he was and everything else. In Britain, he was given a, a knighthood of all things. So uh, by the, the, our, our queen, who's now passed away. And, uh, you know, uh, the, this consideration that you've just spoken of is not given uh, to, to uh, Muslims, for example, uh, when people uh, very openly say uh, horrible things about the Muslim faith. So I'm, I'm just comparing and contrasting these two states of affairs, really. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, well, well, part of the uh, agreement of non-Muslims living in the Muslim country or non-Muslims entering the Muslim country is that they will not insult the Prophet wasallam. Like there's a law, you're not allowed to do that because this is this is what we hold sacred, right? Absolutely. And in the West, they ha there's free speech, you know, theoretically and in practice, the government is violating it in different ways. And there's there there are no free speech absolutists like that that just does not occur yeah. every every country draws the line you're not allowed to cross this line with your free speech free speech ends here right and the western countries do that the european countries do that i believe with uh, the holocaust um in yeah, america it's a, it's a criminal offense in france here and in germany and most actually european countries yeah. to question anything about the historicity of the holocaust is actually a crime and uh, there are people in prison now in germany in france for questioning just questioning the holocaust it's not a crime in america because you have you have civil right you have the constitution and it's not a crime in britain as well but everywhere else it seems to be in the west interesting yeah i mean this all societies decide what are their sacred limits then you're not allowed to transgress these limits if you're a citizen in this country and in europe it's the holocaust and i and i I understand that. I'm not denying yeah, the Holocaust. I understand the motives uh, for doing <laughs> it, but nevertheless, it's we're not we're not free speech absolutists, as you say. Yeah. So you know, we 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 can draw our lines and say you can't insult the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam. I and they're, they're, I I'm totally fine with that. I, I I don't see any problem with that. That's our values. If you want to come to our countries, 
you do, you respect our values. And then when we go to your countries, we'll respect you. You know, if you respect me, I'll respect you. That's the ideal uh, that we have. And um, it's just, it, it's hypocrisy. Like you said, like I know in America, the free speech is theoretically uh, absolute. You know, you're allowed to sit on the street and preach and do things like that, you know. Um, but, you know, the, the, especially now with COVID and disinformation, I mean, it's really, people don't know where the, where the, the lines are drawn anymore or if they should be or anything like that. Um, but anyway, my point is that there are lines uh, to free speech. There are limits to free speech. And as Muslims, these are our lines. You know, if, you, if you're going to come to our country, don't insult the Prophet or the religion. And also in, you know, I live in the UAE, it's a Muslim country. And then a lot of these countries, you're not allowed to insult Judaism or Christianity as well, or, or Buddhism or Hinduism or any of these uh, religions that are like recognized, right? Because that is upsetting the social order. Because these, you know, there are Jews, Christians, Buddhists, Hindus, all these people who are living in the peacefully in the Muslim country, you know, they're working or whatever. And if you go and you start insulting these religions, you know, that's upsetting the order, right? It's upsetting the social order of the Muslim countries. So, you know, a lot of these people in the West, they'll say, oh, look at the Muslims. They're, they're, they don't allow criticism of their religion, et cetera, et cetera. But we also don't allow criticism of Judaism and Christianity and insulting them, right? Like they, they are legally protected in the Muslim countries, right? And that's just something that, that people don't really understand. And and, and it's just a lot of misunderstanding because people grow up in the West. They don't know very much about the East. And, you know, they're looking at parts of it. They're not seeing the whole picture. And it's really easy to mislead people with uh, information by giving them a partial picture of how Muslim countries actually are, you know. Um, so, you know, there's all that. But, uh, you know, I do want people, I do want to let people know that you do, you, you respect Islam, I will respect your religion, right? And there's a verse like this in the Quran. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تَسُبُّوا الَّذِينَ يَدْعُونَ مِن دُونِ اللَّهِ فَيَسُبُّوا اللَّهَ عَدْوَانِ بِغَيْرِ عِنْ Allah says, do not insult or curse those who they are calling upon besides Allah, meaning their idols. Do not curse their idols. And then they curse Allah without knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. You curse their idols, then they're gonna curse Islam, right? That's and then, yeah, that's what people do. You're, you're inviting the harm to come, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't work, right? Allah tells us, if we wanna call the non-Muslims to Islam, you do it with hikmah and mawidatun uh, hasana, and beautiful preaching, right? Wisdom and beautiful preaching. That's that's how we should be talking about you know, to non-Muslims and, and, and all these insulting like that. So we don't want to upset the, the you know, these relationships, they can be fragile. You know, if you have a peace treaty with non-Muslims or agreement, respectful mutual agreement between non-Muslims, these can be fragile. And if you're, you're threatening that by insulting a non-Muslim or harming a non-Muslim, not only is that wrong in itself, right, just insulting and the harming, but it's also wrong against the Muslim community because these peace treaties are beneficial to the Muslim Muslim community, and you threatening these things are are, are a transgression against the Muslims. Mm -hmm. So that, that's another way to look at it. And then um, my last point here is that uh, the word brother occurs in many of the hadith, like you know, don't hate your brothers, don't uh, 
uh, do this or that, or backbiting, all these sins, all these sins that you can do against your brother. The Prophet often mentioned his brother. Uh, but in the explanation of these hadith, many of the scholars said it means the brotherhood generally. So whether it's a Muslim or a non-Muslim, that was actually part of my master's thesis. Uh, my master's thesis was on the golden rule in Islam. And uh, that's the, you know, where the, the Prophet wasallam said, Right? The Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said, None of you has faith until he loves for his brother what he loves for himself. In other narrations, until he loves for his neighbor what he loves for himself. And in other narrations, what, and until he loves for the people what he loves for himself. So wow. the narration comes in all three forms. And the scholars noted this, right? And many of them said, well, then brother here must mean the brotherhood of humanity because he also said the people, he also said your neighbor, right? Um, and this extended to the legal discussion. So there's a hadith in Sahih Muslim uh, that the uh, Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, uh, The Messenger of Allah, peace and blessings be upon him, said, do not undermine the transactions of your brother. So if your brother is... Uh, um, you're in the market, your brother is buying something, they're bartering, whatever, and then you butt in and say, I'm going to pay more and then, you know, or, and do some kind of like uh, undermining of their transactions. It's, that's just not something that brothers do to each other. So, you know, you, you would that's see- illegal in Britain, by the way, I, I, in the housing market, if, if, I, if I want to buy a house and, you know, I, I agree to pay the asking price, say, I don't know, a hundred thousand pounds, whatever, and someone comes along and I've got an agreement to pay this. Someone comes along and says, I'll pay 110,000 pounds. That's quite legal. And you can, oh, I'll take, you know, the, the, the sender can then, the seller can then take the higher offer. Um, it, it's called gazumping. It, it actually, it actually causes much grief. It's actually uh -huh. illegal. It's not legal here in France, but in in Britain, it's actually quite legal. Yeah. So I mean, it's unlawful for Muslims to do that to each other. But what's interesting about this is that there was a scholar, uh, an Azhari scholar, so from Egypt, in the 18th century. I think he died in 1790. Suleiman Jamal. Uh, he said in this hadith that brother includes all three of those categories we mentioned earlier, a dhimmi, a mu'ahid, and a mustatman. So not only are you not allowed to under, undermine the transactions of your Muslim brother, you're not allowed to undermine the transactions of your human brother, the non-Muslims who have an agreement of protection at, at any of these three levels. Um, so that, you know, that, that's, that's a clear instance of a jurist interpreting the word brother in its widest sense to make prohibit Muslims from harming non-Muslims economically, right? So we have instances of jurists that prohibit backbiting against non-Muslims, cursing, insulting non-Muslims, obviously killing non-Muslims, uh, the Prophet وسلم, you know, stealing, obviously all those things, non-Muslims are protected from all those things. And uh, also in the economic realm, Right, so we have. I, I brought all of these examples to show that um, there are many, many instances when the Prophet is talking about Muslims, but he means people in general, or it applies to non-Muslims in this other way. And the general rule, I think, is that uh, you, you, if it's a moral rule, and uh, like don't backbite, don't curse people then of course it applies to non-Muslims unless there is evidence for you to say this only applies to Muslims. So 
that's like the rule. There's a scholar, uh, Khattabi, I believe he's a 12th century, maybe even earlier, uh, talking about men and women, right? And how they're addressed in the Quran and Sunnah. And his rule and his way of interpretation uh, is that if, it, if something is, uh, if there's an address from the Quran and Sunnah to the Muslims, it includes men and women, unless there's evidence that it's only specific for men or only specific for women. So again, the default rules when Allah and his messenger, peace and blessing be upon him, are addressing the Muslims, it includes men and women, unless... We even have English where you the word mankind. So, you know, an injunction is that all mankind must do X. So it just obviously just refers to men, doesn't it? Well, no, mankind... Is... Mm. Yeah, so, uh, and indeed, until quite recently, uh, there was quite a male bias in the language, English language, but it was always understood to include women as well. It wasn't exclusive. Yeah. So I, I think that rule can be uh, practical for Muslims, you know, that when, when the Prophet is talking about is talking about backbiting or any kind of sin, that if it's sinful to do it to Muslims, then it's sinful to do it to non-Muslims, um, unless it's something that, you know, uh, the non-Muslim is like fighting against you or something like that, you know, uh, uh, w which is not usually the case, right? But just as a practical rule, I would say that the moral rules and often the legal rules that apply to Muslims also apply to non-Muslims mm -hmm. and human beings in general. So I think that's was helpful for the Muslim public to be able to have that principle so that when they're interpreting the Quran and Sunnah, they uh, understand it's there's a lot of these things are talking about humankind, mankind in general. Um, and uh, I, I mentioned one instance, this is my last point. I mentioned one instance when the caliphs, uh, I don't remember if I mentioned all of them, but there's there's instances of Omar, uh, may Allah be pleased with him. He was the caliph at the time, you know, and he was known to go around and check out on people and see who is needy, who is begging and everything like that. You know, he was very uh, generous man and very compassionate man, even though he could be tough at times. Uh, but one, there's one story where he's going out and he's looking for people who are in trouble and he sees this old blind uh, Jewish man who's begging, right? And he, he, you know, this is, he thought this was wrong, right? And so what did he say? He said, and kunna akhadna minka al jizya fi shabibatika. Uh, I'm saying that right. He said, We have not been fair to you that we have taken the jizya from you in your old age and you were like this. And so then he ordered the, um, the this Jewish person, man, to be given from the public charity, right? So, the, you know, the, the Beit al Mal, like there's like the public funds. So, you know, he saw this Jewish man who was in need and he, you know, he, he, he said, we haven't been fair to you that we've let you come to this. So then he gave him money from the public charity. So there, there's that example. And then there are examples of the caliphs taking non-Muslims to a judge and the judge rules against the caliph, right? Because there were not like, uh, it's not like the state now where you have the different branches and everything, like you had judges and you, the, the, the state was not like a corporate entity that could take you to court. Like if you went to the judge, it had to be between two people. Um, and that's the difference between life now and life back then. But anyway, 
Um, there was an example of uh, Ali, Ali ibn Abi Talib, anhu, may Allah be pleased with him. He was the fourth caliph, the great companion, that he had lost a coat of armor that you know fell off while they were in the battlefield or whatever. And there was a Christian man who found it, picked it up, and was wearing it, right? And Ali told him, this is my armor. And the, the guy said, uh, the man said, no, you know, this is my armor. I found it. In his mind, it was just lost, and he found it. So he took him to the judge. And the judge asked the caliph, do you have proof, right, that this is your armor? And he said, no, I don't, right? And so then the judge ruled in favor of the Christian, right, against the caliph, right? Wow. That's important, right? Because the non-Muslims can go to the Islamic judge and they can rule against the Muslim state or the Muslim ruler or whoever a Muslim is that makes no difference because in this respect, justice is blind, right, with property rights and the, your right to your bodily health and, you know, to be free from uh, persecution and things like that. Um, so there was this impartial justice that was applied, even in the earliest times, there's examples of the caliphs who did that. And actually the, the story continues that the, the man was so impressed by the caliph that he later became a Muslim, right? And that, and again, is, illustrates the fact that when you, when you share Islam with wisdom and beautiful preaching, that's what brings people into Islam. And if you curse and if you insult and if you're overly aggressive and agitated and, and, you're, in, and you're not respecting the humanity of the people that you're supposed to be giving da'wah to, you know, that just makes them double down or whatever their religion are and they say, oh, look, this Muslim is treating me bad. I don't want any, anything to do with that, right? So, um, you know, again, we have to have wisdom, we have to have beautiful preaching. This is how you share Islam. Um, and so that's the end of my nose. So, ba you know, basically just that, uh, uh, you know, non-Muslims had a degree of autonomy in the uh, classical Muslim governments. They could have their own religion and, you know, they could govern themselves or whatever. They had to pay taxes and Muslims would protect them from hostile nations. Um, and, and the justice was partial or should have been partial or like in, in ideal, uh, that's the example set by the Prophet وسلم, and the caliphs who succeeded him that uh, the non-Muslims, they have natural rights, they have legal rights and, you know, violating those things is a major sin, right? So the idea that some people have that, you know, they're giving da'wah very harshly, they are insulting non-Muslims and, and, and you know, causing up a lot of fuss like that. And it, even if you could argue that those types of things are justified, it's still not wise and it's not beautiful, right? And that's the way we should be preaching to people with wisdom and beauty in a way that attracts people to Islam, not in a way that repulses people to Islam. You know, if you curse and you insult and you backbite and you do all these things, it's going to lead people away from Islam. And that's going to be a disaster on the day of judgment. We came on the day of judgment and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that these persons, these people left Islam because of what you said, right? So it, it works both ways. You know, if somebody enters Islam, you know, because of you, that's a tremendous reward that you get from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment. But on the other hand, if you, if people are misled because of you, then that's a, that's a huge sin and it's, it's disaster. And we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to uh, forgive us and protect us from committing these kinds of sins. Um, we want to have good relations with the non-Muslims. Um, we don't want to have agitated relations. That just is not good for any any reason. And um, you know, it, it's a difficult time now. You know, with uh, with the Italian Prime Minister 
uh, and her comments and things happening in France and um, Sweden as well. In fact, it's in a lot of places actually. There's yeah, and yeah, I'm in Sweden, who is part of the you know. Yeah, and in America, the the and I don't like to use the word Islamophobia, right? But the anti-Muslim, the ideological anti-Islam movement has been kind of dormant, you know, because there was COVID and there was woke stuff and there was things like that that were kind of taking all people's attentions. But it's there, and it will be it will be reactivated if yeah. if if the conditions are right. So uh, we need to be prepared for that and. Um, and, and, and let, me, let me give you an example, just while we're on this topic. So, you know, did you see Jordan Peterson's message to the Muslims? Yeah, yeah I did. Yeah, I did. I mean, it was disappointing for several reasons, but I thought uh, what was also disappointing was a lot of the responses to it because, you know, he's an intellectual, you can engage with him, right? And he, he, he engages, right? And you can talk to him, right? And, uh, you know, he was just condemned. I mean, he said things that were not well-informed and, you know, that were offensive and everything like that. Uh, and I thought, well, I, I myself thought, oh, maybe this could open a dialogue and we could exchange with him. Uh, but then a the, the, there was a lot of like really nasty responses to him. And I was disappointed about that because, you know, then it, when you're nasty to it and somebody like Jordan Peterson is not going to yeah. pay attention to you. Hamza Yusuf, uh, I don't know that predated that particular broadcast, but Hamza Yusuf's uh, dialogue with um, Peterson was very positive and productive. I thought. Good. Yeah, I didn't. I saw that he did it, but I didn't. I didn't look into it. But mm -hmm. I'm just reminding myself and everybody that wisdom and beautiful preaching is the way that we got to share Islam and through our good actions, and we have to show by our actions why Islam is is uh, the truth, right? And is appealing and is a means of salvation, right? Through our own actions and the way that we share it and behave with people and how we relate to non-Muslims is, is extremely important, right? And, um, you know, the, the, the environment is making that a big challenge with uh, right-wing politicians and, and left-wing with the politicians, right? Making that a challenge. Um, but we gotta we gotta stick to the what the Quran tells us to do and how the companions behaved, right? Yeah. And not picking out like things where they're, you know, not picking out like an instance where Omar may Allah be pleased with him. For example, when he was harsh with non-Muslims because he's fighting them, they're fighting him, right? But the non-Muslims that he was at peace with or that were that were in his uh, under his protection or in a peace treaty with him, he was he was very generous with them and good to them, right? So you can't pick out these examples, like uh, battlefield examples, you know, and then make that the general rule, right? It's the opposite, right? The general rule is that you're good to the non-Muslims, you're good to human beings in general, and um, as the basic rule, right? And then if they do something that warrants a response, then that then that changes the condition. That contextual reading, that historical reading, is is often missing. I mean, Christians, uh, you know, th there are many problematic verses in the Bible, both in the New and the Old Testaments. But Christians have had a very sophisticated way of dealing with these problematic passages. Context mm -hmm. so is exaggerated. Well, I won't go into all the details, and and that's kind of accepted that they have th this a vast kind of apologetic uh, hermeneutic at their disposal. But but th that that courtesy is not afforded to Muslims when it comes to interpreting the Quran. 
and the hadith and the actions of the companions. So a simple point there is, but well, what is the context of this saying? Is it in battle? Is it in peace? And so that that is seen as somehow kind of all you're trying to, you know, uh, you know, you're not being honest or something. But no, that this is this is uh, what all religions do. They they, they are trying to understand these things in their context and not try to automatically universalize everything that happens because it may not be appropriate. We may not be in a war situation. We may not be in that situation or whatever. So uh, I, I think we, there needs to be uh, you know, consistency across the board. We should all be able to do, uh, you know, intelligently read our sources and understand what's actually going on there ra rather than just blanketly endorsing or you know, taking a, a particular thing. And uh, coming back to the Ibn Taymiyyah example, I've got the, got my, I was looking up the reference. Uh, the scholar I had in mind is Yahya Michaud, M-I-C-H-O-T. Uh, he's a professor. Um, he's taught in America and in Europe. Uh, the book you refer to, Ibn Taymiyyah Against Extremism, uh, mm. text, uh, text translated, annotated, introduced, with a foreword by Bruce Lawrence. Uh, he's written another book, uh, which I've read, I, I really like, uh, Ibn Taymiyyah, Muslims Under Non-Muslim Rule. Muslims Under Non-Muslim Rule. Mm. Uh, again, mm. Yahya Musho, uh, text translated, annotated, presented, uh, by the same person, uh, published by Oxford University Press, as I say. I mean, I could go through a whole list of books. Actually, mm -hmm. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page here. There's a big bibliography uh, about Ibn Taymiyyah. The, the, sorry, the Ibn Taymiyyah. The Wikipedia page is about Ibn Taymiyyah, recommended reading. And uh, Yahya Mishaud features quite prominently as a specialist in Ibn Taymiyyah's life and thought from a Western point of view, as a Western scholar. He also happens to be a Muslim, but... Um, so yeah, he, he's uh, helped to uh, shine some accurate scholarly light on Ibn Taymiyyah's thought, as opposed to the propaganda uh, uh, abuse that he suffered from Al Qaeda and even from some Western governments who just want to demonize him as if he's a terrorist or something, which he's not, obviously. Yeah, thank you very much for those resources. And just a note on the Bible: um, I, I, uh, I, I was born Christian, and I was I was Christian for twenty years, but I, I never really understood the Trinity. And then once I understood it, I was like, oh, uh, I think God is one. Anyway, uh, just, just a point about the Bible: I'm doing a, a reading through Madara to Salikin by Ibn Al Qayyim, and I believe he said Muslims turn the other cheek. I think he said, I have to dig it out, to dig that out. Because I know Muslims have, have uh, criticized that verse of the Bible, you know, turn the other cheek. And we're Muslims, we don't do that. We fight back, you know, uh, like that. Um, but, it, you know, it, I think that's an expression of forbearance. Like, we, we uh, it's better to forgive, right, if you can. Like, uh, hitting somebody, you know, maybe you can hit back. Legally, that's allowed. Maybe you can, but... It's better not to, right? And um, there are many examples of forbearance, but d just because you brought up the Bible, that was off the top of my head. I got to dig that out. Uh, I believe. There's probably show many examples of turning the other cheek, if you like. Well, when he was abused by that woman who used to throw rubbish at him and so on. It, you know, there are examples, but at the state level, um, you know, sometimes war is necessary, uh, and so it's not always going to be turning the other cheek. And sometimes justice requires. Mm -hmm. And because the Bible's full of examples of, of wars and, and, and retribution and so on. So, uh, and, and even Jesus himself is portrayed in the last book of the Bible as slaughtering his enemies on a truly cosmic scale. Um, yeah. So he's not always turning other cheek, even in the Bible. Um, but I don't want to get into that. <laughs> One of my favorite stories of the, in the uh, New Testament is when he goes, alayhi uh, salam, when he goes into the temple and he whips the money changers, right, that were, that were stealing from people. And that's that's not turning the other cheek, not but really. I, 
I think uh, uh, the 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 uh, what's the what's the book? The Wisdom of Solomon. There's the Psalms and the yeah, yeah. the book of Wisdom of Solomon's in the Old Testament. It's, a, it's one of the Greek Septuagint books. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the the book after the Psalms. It depends a bit if it's a Septuagint or the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish Bible. There are different orders of books in the canon. Anyway, yes, yeah, it's, it's the Wisdom yeah. of Solomon. Yeah. And there's a verse in there, like there's a time for this, there's a time for this, there's a time oh, for yeah, this. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's actually, actually Ecclesiastes, actually, to be fair. That's Ecclesiastes. Yes, that's it. Ecclesiastes. Uh, not yeah. which is actually a separate. Anyway, yeah. Ecclesiastes. Proverbs. Proverbs. Psalms, Proverbs. Yeah. I was thinking of that, but you're right. It was in the other book. But, um, yeah, that, that's the thing. You have to think in categories and conditions yeah. and context. And there's this, there's this, there's this, there's this. You know, it, 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 things are usually not black and white. You know, I mean, there are, like the Prophet Sallallahu said, there's clearly haram, there's clearly halal, and in the middle, there's this gray area, and, you know, don't go towards the doubtful things, you know, and a lot of that, especially now, like with everything happening, there's so much gray area where it's yeah. really not clear, uh, everything like that, you know, but you have to think in terms of principles and categories. And you know, not all of the non-Muslims are my enemy, right? And and you know, ma making those distinctions is very important. I, I'm just really, I'm really disappointed by see uh, Muslims who are not making those distinctions, even though they're clearly in the text, right? And and were detailed by the scholars, right? So, so that is why I I wrote this article. You know, I. Mm -hmm was getting this question, you know, does this hadith apply to non-Muslims? And most of the time the answer is yes. And um, I also, I'm frequently, you know, I get messages from anti-Muslim people who are upset with my thesis, right? Because my thesis states that the golden rule applies to non-Muslims. Well, 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 why, should, why should these non-Muslims be upset? Because you think they rejoice that Islam is now you know, consistent with, uh, uh, with some of the teachings of Jesus in the Synoptic Gospels, but instead they're upset. They, they want Islam to be the worst possible religion it can yeah. be, and upset when you actually, it is not. And it, it, it's an example of bad faith, isn't it? It's not coming from a good mm -hmm. place in the human heart when you mm -hmm. want something to be as bad as possible. So I can go on thinking bad things about it. You want something to be better. Think, oh, well, thank goodness for that. I'm so pleased to learn that Islam is not, as I erroneously thought, but you're yeah. saying people criticize you. Well, it's coming from a really weird, twisted place where people want mm -hmm. things to be worse than they really are. Uh, it just strikes yeah. me as a very odd human behavior. It, yeah, it is. I mean, and some of these guys are PhDs and other people who are authors and, you know, they're heavily invested in this narrative that yes. Islam is evil and everything like that. So they get offended when I debunk that with various sources. And it was the same thing when, um, I was, uh, you know, there's another false claim that uh, in Islam, you're allowed to rape the women on the battlefield and everything like that. And I, I did a long article, very long article showing all of the legal, uh, legal things with regard to that. And feminists were upset with it. And I also thought that was strange. Like, I'm, I'm arguing that you're not allowed to rape people in Islam, women in Islam. Like, you, you, isn't that what you want from me? You know, but they're they're invested in Islam as a misogynistic religion, right? Islam is an evil woman hating religion. So they were upset for me that I was showing that there's there's a legal argument that you're not allowed to rape people. And of course you're not, right? Just use your brain for a minute. Of course you're not allowed to do that. 
Um, but, you know, it, because people come up with these doubts and you have to have this long-winded legal discussion, which I did, uh, but that reaction was also bizarre too. So it's not just the Islamophobes, but these were Muslim feminist academics who were upset with me because I'm showing how rape is not permissible and harming your wife, raping your wife is not permissible under the classical Islamic law principles, right? And you'd think they would just uh, support that, but they, they didn't. So, and, and again, they're academic. It's really hard for academics. So they spent their whole career arguing this, 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 this. And then when somebody comes and throws a wrench in that, they, they can be very defensive. And I, I've seen, I work in academia, so I've seen that quite a bit. Um, yeah. But I think that's what part of that's what's going on here as well. It's extraordinary. Uh, I think from a, just a psychologist's point of view, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> Why are these people want things to be worse than they are? You know, what what sane person actually wants that outcome? You know, but they do. Uh, otherwise, enlightened liberal people uh, uh, prefer prefer worse than better. You know, um, yeah. in life, which is a complete mystery to me. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, thank you, Justin, very much indeed. Your time has been absolutely fascinating, and uh, I, I will link uh, to the article in the description below. The article being, of course, does that apply to non-Muslims too as well? Uh, and uh, we've obviously heard a, a very interesting answer. Most of the time, yes, but not always, depending on various criteria, which uh, you, Justin has already explained in much detail. So um, thank you very much indeed, Justin. Uh, fascinating. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Okay, till next time. Salam alaikum. Salam When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.